Welcome to the Emerging Revolutionary War podcast. Emerging Revolutionary War is a public history platform that explores all aspects of the Revolutionary War with up-and-coming historians and connects this history to the places where it occurred. We strive to make it fun and engaging for all audiences. We have a blog and website, emergingrevolutionarywar.org, where you can check out frequent blog posts and history articles by numerous historians. In addition to our blog, we are active on social media. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We host an annual symposium that takes place in Alexandria, Virginia, and we now also host Battlefield Bus Tours. We also have the Emerging Revolutionary War book series, published by Savas Beattie. To date, we have four titles out and more on the way. These books offer a brief, readable, and illustrated narrative and include self-guided tours of the battlefields. So far, we have books on Lexington and Concord, Trent and Princeton, Monmouth, and Valley Forge. Check them out wherever books are sold. We always offer speakers that can talk about a range of Revolutionary War topics, and our historians have been featured in places such as C-SPAN, American History TV, and Fox Nation documentaries. Make Emerging Revolutionary War your home for the 250th anniversary of America's independence. This show is filmed live every other week on our Facebook page, so if you'd like to watch these live and have an opportunity to engage with us, check us out every other Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern on our Facebook page. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, everyone, and welcome back to uh, the Emerging Revolutionary War, our Rev War Revelry. Uh, welcome to the month of March. We are experiencing spring weather down here in Maryland, so it's nice 70 degrees. Um, with tonight, we have uh, Dan Welch of the Emerging Revolutionary War, Emerging Civil War, uh, coming from the great Northwest Ordinance Territory state of Ohio. Um, and tonight, we're going to discuss uh, one of the interesting fallout uh, of the Saratoga campaign, the Convention Army. Um, we don't hear that term too often when with surrendered armies. Um, and so tonight is a discussion of what who these men were, what happened, how they kind of were in limbo, and eventually how they took a tour of the pretty much half the uh, American colonies uh, by the time they uh, were actually shipped back uh, to Great Britain or into the German principalities. So uh, we'll have a discussion today. We're glad uh, you're with us. If you have any questions, of course, put them in the comments itself. But I'll kick it over to Dan for the opening remarks here on um, what is the Convention Army or Saratoga. We'll start off big 50,000-foot view. Yeah, you know, this is one of these interesting stories in the American Revolution that is not really told, um, particularly in the historiography. You know, there's some hints here and there. There's some um, smaller works that have been, been done on the Convention Army, but what an odyssey of a story that spans more than six years of the American Revolution uh, with this Convention Army. And so what, you know, what is a Convention Army? Where does the story begin? As you noted, Phil, that this all comes about in the wake of the uh, Saratoga campaign. Uh, it's the fall of 1777, October of 1777, and uh, there is a large force, uh, British force, uh, comprising not only British but uh, German soldiers as well, uh, that are going to surrender uh, to American forces under the command of Gates. Uh, in October 1777. This is following uh, the second battle of Freeman's Farm uh, in that month of 1777. Um, but basically what happens is when Burgoyne surrenders the troops or begins to negotiate with Gates, realizing that, that Burgoyne does not have a position in which he's going to be able to break free uh, that he's he's virtually surrounded by Gates. Gates's forces outnumber him nearly two to one. Um, Burgoyne and Gates start talking about um, how to to you know reach that point of of surrender or capitulation. And so what Burgoyne does is he bounds his army in what's known as a convention uh, for the victorious Gates. And so that's why they're referred to as the the convention army. But basically what, what happens is they dictate these terms, terms, they go back and forth, and the terms of the convention uh, is in regards to sending Burgoyne's men back to Europe under assurance that they would never again fight in North America during the remainder of the war. The problem is that Gates negotiates this with Burgoyne before sending 
the outcome, if you will, or even the notion that he's doing this to Congress. And Congress looks at what Gates has negotiated and says, wait a minute, this we cannot follow the orders uh, of this convention. We can't we can't carry it out. Um, you know, the the situation of the fight for independence in the fall of 1777 is by no means guaranteed toward the Americans. This is a sizable force of thousands of soldiers from uh, Britain and from Germany. Uh, there's even some Canada, uh, Canadian uh, forces that have joined up with Burgoyne's men. So uh, Congress is not going to allow this situation uh, to play out for the convention to be honored. So what Congress is going to do is they're going to do a lot of tap dancing over the next six years and basically um, shunt these troops from one place to the next throughout the colonies. Uh, by the end of it, uh, one historian puts into effect that this army will have um, basically been prisoners, if you will, in 11 of the 13 colonies by 1783. So, you know, really that 50,000 uh, foot view Burgoyne's army has, uh, if you will, surrendered to Gates's army following the Saratoga campaign in October of 1777. In order to avoid an official surrender, Burgoyne will bound his forces in a convention with Gates. And now Congress is going to have to to deal with the fallout of this, this deal that Gates has made with Burgoyne. And Burgoyne uh, is very obviously very sensitive to uh, the the wording of this as well. If you're looking at the, the view, um, what's interesting is uh, the pulling of some of his officers and um, leading up to um, the capitulation. We also uh, know a little bit about the dealings and sometimes uh, with uh, James Wilkinson, who uh, was one of the most colorful characters uh, that will emerge uh, from the uh, American Revolution, um, and obviously. Um, will um, have a fall from fame, so to speak, later on. Um, uh, he's a long-serving, um, and he's uh, uh, here, though uh, he is kind of the go-between. But uh, there are some articles uh, of this convention. Um, of course, uh, necessary things, the arms and artillery will be given up. Uh, the troops will be withdrawn uh, through Boston um, to back to Europe. Um, of course, you have, not only do you have British soldiers, um, Burgoyne actually tries to um, delay a few days to allow some of his Canadian, um, the militia and so forth, to, to sneak out, uh, to get up, to, up, back up to Canada, up through the Hudson. And of course, um, the uh, to, after he finds word that the other pincer movement uh, with Barry St. Leger, uh, who comes down the Mohawk Valley, he stopped at what is now um, Fort Stanwix. And of course, um, there is also uh, the 50,000 foot view is you've got basically three major players too in the British forces or British military hierarchy. You have William Howe is circling around. You've got John Burgoyne, Sir Henry Clayton who's trying to come up the Hudson and all being directed by George Germain from 3,000 miles away. Um, and then you have a guy, Sir Guy Carlton sitting in Canada who's pretty much going, I'm out. So um, once you cross over out of New York, he's frustrated with Germain and he's having his own. So you've got all this, but on fighting, what happens is about 5,990 soldiers um, and German plus uh, British. And those Germans come from either uh, the German word, uh, hopefully I don't mispronounce it, is Braunschweiger. We call it Brunswick, um, Hesse Hanau. Um, they're on there by a guy named Frederick uh, Riedesel, uh, who is would stay with the troops. Um, Burgoyne actually will go with the troops back to Boston, uh, where he gets more elbow room, as they uh, say, because um, uh, he needed uh, that's a what a comparison back to in Boston uh, prior to the Bunker Hill or Breed's Hill engagement. Um, and then the second command is really William Phillips, who uh, uh, will die in Petersburg, Virginia, uh, prior to Cornwallis's forces arriving in 1781. But Phillips is really the one that does stay with the convention army. Uh, but some of these articles as well, um, that the provisions to be supplied on the same scale is issued to the American army. Um, I'm sure the British um, regretted that article being in there because how the uh, American army is uh, lack of supplied uh, throughout it. Um, there's also the, no baggage will be searched by the Americans on assurance that no public stores are contained therein. Officers and men must not be separated as far as circumstances permit. Um, and the treaty does cover everyone, um, not only just the army, but the camp followers as well. Um, Canadians are going to be allowed to return to Canada and the um, officers to be admitted parole in their sidearms and clothing and baggage from Canada could be transmitted or allowed for transit. And so 
is really a capitulation at all. I mean, basically it's, yeah, we'll give up the army and then move it in. Um, and so you can see why Congress, Continental Congress, and especially some of the uh, more radicals um, think that this isn't really a, a capitulation or convention at all. Um, we always get stuck with the, the main sticking point is, of course, these these men will be sent back to England or Great Britain or to the German principalities uh, until they're exchanged. But there's no stipulation that they can't just move troops from those home countries to back into uh, the, the colonies to replenish. And so uh, what happens is kind of an overstepping uh, from Gates. Um, and But he thinks that, of course, he does not know what's coming up. Uh, supposedly coming up behind him that uh, the thrust of the Hudson by Clinton. Um, yeah, and that's a and that's a huge factor. Um, I, I think in a lot of the historiography, the secondary sources out there, Gates really gets a bad rap for making this really broad um, capitulation, if you will. The, the terms of the convention really allow such a huge amount of leeway. But I think Gates was really up against a rock in a hard place. Yeah, he outnumbers Burgoyne's forces. Uh, he could attack Burgoyne and force a uh, force, you know, some sort of more defined surrender, if you will. But the attack is going to most likely be a frontal assault. It'll be costly to the Americans to do so. And, you know, Gates is getting um, pretty close to real-time intelligence uh, that, that Clinton's pushing up the Hudson. And he's got another force coming into his rear. And so, you know, in, in that situation, Gates is thinking, my God, I'm going to be stuck here. And, you know, uh, we would call it military strategy in this pincer movement. I'm going to be squeezed between uh, Clinton and Burgoyne. I've got to do something with Burgoyne's forces. I've got to get them off the chessboard before I've got to turn my army around and face this threat. I think what Gates struggles with is twofold, is number one is selling this as a big victory um, throughout the colonial presses and in, in, in the Continental Congress. And I think really early on in the story, too, um, where Gates stumbles is, is really the political side of things. It's two weeks after, you know, that this, this convention has been hammered out between Burgoyne and Gates before Gates sends anybody. Uh, to the Continental Congress. Uh, it's not until October 31st that Gates' official representative arrives uh, to the Continental Congress, which is in York, Pennsylvania at the time, uh, due to the circumstances going on uh, in New Jersey and, and Eastern uh, Pennsylvania and Philadelphia. So, you know, Gates has got a problem selling it. Uh, where is this big victory? Um, this is a very, very... Um, very broad conventional terms and being slow to really inform Congress of what he has hammered out with Burgoyne. So uh, I completely agree with you in that, that fact, Phil, that, that, you know, this is, this is a tough place for Gates, but I think he gets, he gets overly shamed, if you will, in the, in the historiography. Um, he's truly in a, in a tough spot in October of, of 1777. Um, you're exactly right. And just following some of the, the chat here as well, we actually have a, uh, a gentleman listening that is related to General James Wilkinson. Um, so uh, that's awesome. pretty cool. We also have a uh, person here who's related to General George Clinton, um, who actually, um, uh, the, not to be confused with the, uh, the British general there, um, George Clinton actually would uh, become governor and actually one time governor and lieutenant governor. Um, he's voted in his both of New York um, and actually does a lot to help Washington's army. Um, but not only is the Continental Congress left, uh, but Washington actually receives this secondhand as well. The major victory, I think, actually comes, I think it's Putnam that actually relays the message saying, hey, I've received this, uh, passing it along as well. Some of that, of course, is Wilkinson coming south. He decides to hang out and have a night of drinking and revelry. Uh, similar, maybe he would have fit in with us uh, drinking <laughs> and revelry. Uh, and uh, I think and with a staff officer of um, Lord uh, Sterling. Um, and then he, of course, um, will pass on some other news that is outside of the discussion of this. Um, what also, uh, so the big horse news is that uh, the kind of the Congress is going to renege on, on the other thing, but there's also other clauses of this that um, the, the, the Americans kind of um, are confused or kind of skeptical at. Um, you have about over 5,000, around 4,900 uh, infantrymen that surrender, and the Americans take possession of 648 cartouche boxes. 
So something just doesn't add up there to the Americans. Yeah. Um, and so there are some of those, but meanwhile, that that is what's happening, the political intrigue. Of course, the Americans um, are definitely moving the, the political side of it, tying some of these to, okay, uh, we will release these um, prisoners or convention army as soon as we get uh, some recognition from uh, the British government. Um, and of course, recognize the, the rebelling colonies, which is something that Lord North's uh, administration is never going to do um, because that is paramount to something that these guys are legit um, and not a rebellion. But as they march in, of course, uh, growing up uh, with a father who was a military uh, history buff reader, he always talked about the one lady screaming out uh, to John Burgoyne, I bet you have enough elbow room now. Um, <laughs> so it's, I don't know if that's the same as the uh, proverbial Barbara Fritchie story or, or whatever, waving the flag um, in, in Frederick. I had to mention that because I am sitting in Frederick, Maryland. So uh, but uh, so they get in and uh, ironically, the uh, the British and German soldiers will actually march into Cambridge um, and where they will be housed in the barracks that were hastily put up uh, to provide shelter for another army um, about two, what, two years earlier, Early. the, Amer the American army in 1775. Um, they're actually commanded uh, on the way in. One of the brigades that goes in is a guy who's very familiar, especially if you followed us um, back in December, I think. Maybe the last time Dan Welch was one of one of the uh, revelries was the uh, watch party. Uh, John Glover, yeah. uh, his Massachusetts brigade. Um, that guy seems to be everywhere. Uh, they mar help lead Forrest, the army. Him and Joseph Plum Martin, the Forrest Gumps of the American Revolution. <laughs> yeah. There, there we go. So they head in. Um, and, of course, uh, the other commander who's uh, played a major part initially in the war. Um, and some of these guys, it's uh, they take – other theaters, that's uh, William Heath is actually commander in Boston at the time as well. And, and their goal, of course, is to try to keep, um, well, keep the, this army intact. And try, at the same time, what is amazing is that the amount of, um, not I don't want to say confusion, but the ambiguity of what the, what these soldiers are supposed to do. Um, so yeah. now they are um, so forth in prison, they're waiting to be exchanged. Um, the company commanders, the, the line officers are trying to keep them, um, well, trying to keep them in one place um, while John Burgoyne will actually uh, take sail eventually back uh, to England to, to plead his case. Um, but at the same time, there is the fear that maybe a British strike will come up from, say, Rhode Island or from New York City to, to get them. At the same time, you have uh, some of these soldiers start to uh, walk out and try to uh, provide some type of income. Um, conditions are very, very bad um, in uh, Boston for uh, the amount of soldiers that are there. So um, I don't know if you have anything to add about this part of it, uh, Dan, but I'll give you a... Yeah, you know, I think this is this, is, this period of, of late October through the, the change into January of 1778 is just a lot of people just do not know um, what to do. And in particular, um, the Continental Congress is realizing that this is something that they cannot hold up, that this is something that is um, not good for the American cause at this point in the war. Washington is upset by the convention. Uh, there are many uh, congressmen in York, Pennsylvania, that are speaking out against the terms of, of it. But how are we going to, for lack of a better word, how are we going to get out of this? How is the American government and the American military going to get out of this situation um, without outright and blatantly violating this convention that, that Gates and Burgoyne have negotiated? And so there's a lot of people, you know, kind of feeling around for what to do. Uh, not only Glover and, and his charge with all these men up there, um, not only with, uh, you know, Continental Congress and York, but Gates, um, you know, trying to maintain uh, some level of credibility for negotiating this this convention and not getting excoriated by other high-ranking officers in the Continental Army, as well as uh, the press and, and folks back home. 
but what happens in this time period that you're discussing, you know, November, December of, of, of 1777 is that everybody's kind of feeling out this situation. Uh, and Burgoyne is, is really not happy with it. A lot of the officers that are bound by this convention on the British and, and German side are really not happy with the conditions in Boston, as you mentioned, are, are terrible. The condition in Cambridge is terrible. Uh, once they first get there, nobody is prepared for, for this level of, and for lack of a better word, Again, not prisoners, uh, because the the convention's very clear. They're not they are not considered to be prisoners. If anything, conventioners, um, you know. So, what what Congress does next, is, and the handling of this, is some of the the early federal government's um, political maneuvering at its finest. Um, Burgoyne has this outburst, if you will, uh, in December of 1777 about some of those lodging conditions in Boston and in Cambridge in regards to um, the quarters as it's applied to rank. That, you know, the higher up the rank you are, the better the condition of the quarters you'll be afforded. And Burgoyne has absolutely just had it by December. And he, he has this, this public outburst, if you will. Uh, he, you know, writes a charge that the violation that the Americans have violated the terms of of the convention based upon this scenario what Congress does is they use this as an excuse in January of 1770 1778 to suspend the execution of the convention that everything that had been negotiated by Gates and Burgoyne is now put on hold and this is going to allow the Continental Congress more time to begin to deal with the court of Great Britain and figure out the next steps of what are we going to do with these 5,000 men that are inadequately um, housed in Cambridge and Boston? How are we going to feed them, clothe them? Um, you know, all of these things uh, that Congress needs to work out and, and see what parts of the convention um, is going to be beneficial to the American cause and what part of the, the convention can the Americans politically outmaneuver to benefit, um, to benefit again, uh, the American cause of the war now in, in the winter of 1778. Perfect. And uh, just taking a, um, a step back, we had a few questions come in. Um, did sure. Gates consult his senior officers, Morgan, Arnold, et cetera, if they would support a convention agreement? Um, well, Arnold's wounded. Um, his second command, Benjamin Lincoln, I think, is also um, slightly wounded. Uh, Morgan's just a, um, I mean, too far down. He's, he's one of, yeah, the uh, colonel, I think, at the time. Uh, might I uh, don't know if he got his brigadier, brigadier generalship just yet, but he does. They're too far down the totem pole. Uh, some of the most, uh, depending on whether you, how much you believe a Wilkinson's accounts, it seems like Gates is... Um, and one of the times when they're passing messages back, Gates even pulls out a piece of paper out of his pocket or so forth and says, I already have some terms agreed upon. So it's probably pretty um, one-sided on the American side. Um, I don't know agreed. if you uh, agreed. So, um, yeah, I think he does consult with some of his staff. I know um, he does consult with Wilkinson. He, he's, he does consult with his adjutant at the time on his staff. But other than that, the, the high – High-level officers within Gates's command are are really e either uh, unaccessible. Uh, again, Gates is on a time crunch. He's got to get this done within a matter of days to allow him to not only get Burgoyne's army out of the area, but to get his army uh, prepared to to meet the threat of Clinton uh, coming along the Hudson. So, uh, I, you know, in answer to that question on the chat, yes, Gates is is pretty much excluding his high-ranking officers. This is not what we would call a council of war, where Gates is widely sharing the details he's discussing with Burgoyne. Uh, it is mainly a, a Gates-sided show in the negotiations. And then the other question we got um, is, is, were there any American loyalists with Burgoyne's army were allowed to go to Canada under the convention? Um, prior to even the convention being established, uh, Gates will try to, or excuse me, Burgoyne will try to get some of the Canadian loyalists out of camp and maybe, and taking some supplies north, try to get them at least to Ticonderoga, which is still under uh, British uh, control at the time. Um, of course, that'll be uh, given kind of back up um, as word arrives that Burgoyne's army has um capitulated uh in uh new york um so there's also obviously some of the um uh leading loyalists in new york at the time philip skeen is uh he kind of filters away as, as well um 
And so most of them, uh, he's a, Burgoyne is actually kind of contemplating what some of the reaction would be up to if these loyalists are caught with how they would be uh, treated in this convention. And so prior to the convention happening, um, a lot of them will uh, be told to, to, to kind of get out of camp here, some supplies, some things believe that some of the, um, maybe some of the money or so forth that goes north. Um, and that's another um, segue with the, the money as well, with um, the pay for things. Uh, the Americans, of course, are going to consist on uh, on specie, a hard currency, um, obviously, because of the depreciation of the uh, continental dollar as the war progresses. Uh, one of the interesting facts as well is that um, it actually behooves, as the Convention Army is in Cambridge, um, there are some interactions, uh, of course, negative with some of um, the, the colonial soldiers that are there, some of the militia. Uh, some of these militia men are as young as 14, 15 years old that are guarding uh, these yeah. British prisoners. A lot of these prisoners, I mean, there's amazing accounts. Uh, there's an older book, I'll uh, bring it up, date a little bit, Escape in America. I don't know if you can see it, the British Convention, Prisoners 77 to 83 by a guy named Richard Sampson. Um, he has done it, uh, did a great job of finding individual accounts uh, for some of these soldiers um, that try to make it to New York. Um, and, and so a lot of them are facing, are farmed out. They try to get, they get hired by local farmers, but there's also a need for some of the, to keep them there, obviously, because Burgoyne, Phillips, and other ones are um, concerned about that the more that escape, the more they get out, the less that will hold the convention terms as it's debated by the Continental Congress and, of course, by uh, the British administration. But these soldiers, the other thing is that these soldiers are, a lot of these junior officers, or I'm sorry, the colonels of the regiment are paid, or have to uh, put a lot of money and time in training these soldiers, and now these uh, they're leaving. Obviously, Clinton and all of them are uh, eager to get these trained soldiers if they want to escape to try to get them there. And Clinton actually will say, uh, when he becomes commander-in-chief, that they will uh, provide, I think, one shilling, I think it is, per soldier that arrives from the Convention Army back to their original regiment, and that way will kind of supply um, or kind of Rough, unruffle the feathers of these men escaping from their uh, junior officers, from their company commanders that what, took a lot of time and, and money to, uh, to invest in these soldiers from the recruitment all the way through the training and so forth. So it's kind of an interesting perspective that they don't want them to escape because it actually hurts the bottom line. Uh -huh. it, you know, and, it, and it's really interesting, you know, some of the points that you raised there, uh, Phil, was um, talking about um, these men drawing pay from somewhere uh, and, the, and the camp followers and the, nece the necessity of these men having specie. Um, you know, one of the things that is often overlooked is the numbers of camp followers, particularly with Burgoyne's army, a number of your junior grade officers, even up through, um, you know, some of your higher ranking officers brought their whole families with them. They've got their wife and two, three, four kids with them, um, you know, in addition to, to any other um, folks that may be, you know, uh, under their employ while, you know, they're, they're in the army and in the United States, so, or in the colonies, I should say. So, you know, this is a this is a problem for these guys. And as things begin to shake out during this time period, um, particularly at least at least the German soldiers, they're going to be able to draw pay um, you know, on a regular basis. Um, the British government will continue to pay for their soldiers, uh, their pay uh, eventually, as well as the British will be supplying them food from uh, from British supplies that are within the colonies already. Uh, but these are things that we'll only see towards the beginning of this this convention. And as the convention wears on and on and on and, and the Continental Congress continues to, to delay, um, we're going to see the burdens from the uh, conventioners be placed onto the Americans. But we'll get to that uh, in a little bit. What I, what I want to do is kind of transition us now to um, kind of the next phase of this, which is the summer of 1778. So these guys are just Before shy. Before you phase this real quick, we had yeah. a question come in, um, and I want to kind of clarify. Uh, it was, why did Gates believe that Hal was moving, coming north? Um, it wasn't, Gates did not believe Hal was coming north. Sir Henry Clinton, I think, had approximately 3,000 soldiers. He made an expedition up the Hudson, attacking, I think, Stony Point for Planks Point. Or um, if I'm saying that right, in um, which uh, along the Hudson, and so then did not realize that he did not have the manpower to continue up. Uh, he could either 
go back to New York City and hotel. Clinton is very frustrated uh, at, at Hal, who took the majority of the troops around for the Philadelphia campaign of 1777. But Gates is getting a uh, word, and there are messengers that are leaving Burgoyne's army to try to find Clinton and see where the progress is. And so it is Sir Henry Clinton and a small British force that are that small campaign up the Hudson River. And so that is what Gates is receiving word of, that there is something coming kind of literally right up behind, right up behind his lines and could, uh, as Dan Welch said earlier, pincer him there as well. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, let's, uh, with that, we will transition back into the summer uh, of the first summer of the Convention Army's odyssey in North America. America. So, yeah, you know, so one of the things back in January of 1778, you know, the Continental Congress basically puts a pause on this whole thing. And one of their conditions was that this thing needed to be approved by um, British officials and the British administration. Uh, again, Burgoyne had negotiated this without any sort of clearance from his military superiors within the colonies, let alone Great Britain. Gates does the same thing on the American side. So in the summer of 1778, what will occur is known as the Carlisle Commission. The Carlisle Commission is a number of, of British government officials that is sent to the, to the colonies to really treat with the Continental Congress on several matters that have arisen as, as a result of, of the war so far. And one of the matters that they want to, to discuss and treat with um, is regarding the Convention Army. And they, they basically come and they say on this topic, we have the power, we have the authority to sign the convention so it can finally be acted upon and we can move forward. But again, Congress does some really uh, expertise in their political maneuvering and basically say, you know, that yes, you may have been given that authority, but we won't recognize it. It's got to, this thing's got to be, you know, taken over to Great Britain. It's got to be signed over there, approved over there um, for us to recognize it. And what they are doing at this point is the Continental Congress is continually buying time. They're looking for any way to buy time to figure out what to do with these conventioners and how to get out of this thing that, that Gates has negotiated. So after the Carlisle Commission in the summer of 1778, that, that'll break down on, on the matter of the Saratoga veterans. Uh, they won't make any real progress with the Continental Congress at that time. And you can imagine when the Carlisle Commission gets back to Great Britain, uh, word gets back to them that they've basically been roughed, rebuffed on this matter, that the British government is furious uh, over this whole thing. And this will be the last time that the British government will bring up the topic of the convention uh, and try to negotiate further to get the convention honored. This is it. This is 17, summer 1778. And so now there's a lot of doubt, worry, concern, if you will, uh, amongst the conventioners of what's going to happen next. And now there's going to be a necessity on the, on the side of, of the Continental Forces and the, the Congress of what are we going to do with these guys? We can't keep them in Cambridge and Boston forever. Uh, so time will, will march on. Time will march on, uh, and Congress will get around to looking at some of those issues, not until December of 1778. So we're now past the first year since these guys have been captured, um, when they start talking to representatives from New Jersey, from Pennsylvania, from Virginia in the Continental Congress of, of perhaps moving these men to those states. Um, but that, that's going to break down. That's going to break down as well. So, uh, Phil, do you want to pick up the story there and, and kind of move us into 1779 and, and where they go from Cambridge? Sure. So initially, uh, there is some fear, of course, keeping them too close to uh, the eastern seaboard, to, to a port town. I mean, obviously, the British Navy is still very strong. Uh, could something sort of, sort of a naval expedition coming up from maybe Newport, Rhode Island, or, of course, New York City? Um, because, I mean, these are, at the time, almost 6,000 veteran soldiers. Um, I mean, now, of course, desertions, other ones, and so forth. So you might not be at 6,000, but you imagine uh, what another, say, 4,000 uh, soldiers that are very highly trained, um, skilled veterans of many a field um, that could provide for the British. 
Um, right. And, and one of the things we should say, and I don't think we mentioned, is the reason why they are there in Cambridge and Boston is because that was going to be the point of embarkation for these soldiers to head back to England. One of Washington's concerns and why this whole thing gets blown up after Gates negotiates it is Washington fears that those men will be boarded in Boston and sailed along the eastern coast, as you mentioned, uh, to either to be to support the British uh, occupation in New York uh, and, and the British um, control in that area of the colonies, or further south towards Virginia, towards the the, the southern British armies uh, as well. So that's the they, reason why they're there. Or if they go back, say the uh, convention, because um, there is the. The ships do arrive to get them out of Boston back to Great Britain as the convention stipulations stay. But Washington's also uh, very acute uh, of thinking, wait a minute, if they leave in October, November, or say December of 1777 and arrive back in Great Britain, they'll replace the troops that possibly are on the uh, manning the islands, Ireland, Great Britain. Those men will get back on ships and arrive back in North America for the next campaigning season of 1778. So the British are just going to it's like a substitution. And so right. that's why he's worried as well. So they will eventually move them out, I think, out to Rutland, uh, Massachusetts, more into the interior, get him away from, especially as the convention arms break down. Now, um, men start to, to desert. Um, they're, they're, well, obviously, they'll try to arrive back to New York or, or Newport or, or in, maybe even up into Canada trying to get back to friendly lines. But some of these British soldiers start to realize something else is that um, there's enticements, there's recruitment officers actually coming to Boston, coming to Rutland to recruit for units in the Continental Army or units in the militia. Um, even um, Washington will write a very scathing letter to uh, uh, some officers about how they're ignoring his pleas to keep to stop recruiting these guys because all they're doing is taking the public stores. And then as soon as they get closer to British lines, they're deserting. Uh, even yeah. um, he even sends a very strong worded letter to uh, Thaddeus Kuzco, uh, or I think, no, I'm sorry, Kazimir Pulaski got the wrong Polish uh, <laughs> guy there. Uh, Pulaski, who's trying to raise a legion, he's like, are you ignoring what I'm trying to tell you, basically paraphrasing there, Washington. Uh, yeah. So you move him out to Rutland. Uh, another thing that uh, plays a part in this as well, as you as you move him around everything, um, they'll start to see that as they move from uh, Massachusetts into more of the middle colonies, the route they take, um, where they're headed. Um, they're trying to bring them, of course, to maybe some of the more German uh, uh, settled areas of Pennsylvania. There are ties. I mean, some of these German settlements are going to be enticements to uh, these Brunswickers, these uh, Hesse Hanau uh, soldiers. Um, there's also an interesting uh, that, that these men, being uh, quote unquote mercenaries of the British. Um, the British are paying for them. And so the more you move them away into the interior, the more you bring them away from uh, possible exchange points, the more it's going to cost the British for them to march back um, as well. So they will head down. Uh, it's actually, they will settle uh, sometime um, on land that was actually offered by uh, the Harvey family. Um, actually, John Harvey in Virginia, outside of Charlottesville, um, is actually a member of the kind of the Congress in 1778. Um, so in November, the southward march begins. Uh, there's approximately um, 1,300 of the former soldiers had decided with their feet to stay in New England, either desert to the countryside where opportunities and relationships had made a stronger appeal. There's still approximately 2,000 British soldiers, about 1,800 German, both Hessian and Brunswickers, and nearly 300 women and children that will take this 700-mile uh, trek um, to Virginia. Uh, during that time, another 600 soldiers actually uh, desert or leave the column on the route. And so and now they're heading south through the middle colonies to arrive in the beautiful bucolic foothills uh, outside Charlottesville, um, where, I don't know, Dan, if you want to pick up the story, you can talk about um, their wonderful abode in outside Charlottesville. Yeah, so you know, as the as the discussion is, as you mentioned, happening in the Continental Congress of what to do next, where to send these guys next. John Harvey of Virginia, a delegate there, you know, says that they should be housed. Um, Charlottesville would make a great location, just outside of the town of Charlottesville. We can put them there. Um, what Harvey doesn't really allude to is that the land he is referring to is owned by himself. So he's going to make a windfall uh, on this because one of the things the Convention Army has done wherever it goes is it's putting a 
lot of, as you mentioned, that specie hard currency into the local economies. These, these guys are getting paid. Um, they're allowed to work. They, many of these uh, soldiers, both the Germans and the British, are skilled tradesmen. Skilled tradesmen are in high demand in Massachusetts. As the army marches southward, they're in high demand. Um, so they're getting paid by taking jobs. They're getting paid um, their, their soldier pay from the respective, uh, you know, Germans and, and British are getting paid. So there's a lot of money these guys have, and they're spending money. And, and Harvey looks at this as a great way to, to utilize his land, have it housed there just outside of Charlottesville. Um, but there is a little bit of pushback before the army, the convention army gets on the march. Um, a number of, of members of the Continental Congress uh, are still of the idea of Pulaski and Washington that they should not be housing this large force altogether. Um, that, you know, that these are veteran troops, they should not be allowed. And so there's a number of proposals in Congress that they want to break this up, this army up into three spots. Charlottesville, will still be on the list, but in addition to that, Frederick, Maryland, where you're coming to us from this evening, and Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Uh, but ultimately, that is, that's shut down, uh, and the guys begin to arrive there out, out of this arduous journey um, to get them uh, down to Charlottesville. The, the journey began out of Massachusetts in a, in a staggered um, way, if you will. This force was divided up into three divisions. Uh, the first division went two days past, second division, third division, that two days after that. Uh, but when they get there, what they, what they come across is it far worse than anything they had experienced in the New England colonies. Um, Harvey was unable to find those skilled tradesmen. Um, he was under the belief that they would be arriving much later than they did. Um, so they arrived to half-completed barracks. Um, no huts had been done. Some of the barracks still had uh, no roofs on them. Um, although the weather was um, turning milder in in Virginia, there uh, even though it was the the, the winter time, um, there was snow uh, that was inside the barracks. So when these guys get there, they're they're on low supplies. Uh, there's nowhere to put, put a, uh, basically be under shelter, if you will. It is a really bad situation when they first arrive to Charlottesville. Um, but, you know, after some hard work and some time, they will they'll settle in. Um, the conventioners will they'll begin to pick up jobs again. They'll begin to work as, uh, tr uh, excuse me, um, a skilled tradesman uh, in the area. It becomes, again, a boon for the local Charlottesville economy. Jefferson himself will uh, be uh, hosting many of the top-ranking officers at Monticello, um, sometimes daily. Uh, so he'll form a, a really good relationship with those officers, including one Br a British officer by the, by the name of Phillips. Um, Phillips and Jefferson had kind of uh, gone way back, if you will. And, and during this time, Phillips and Jefferson tried to renegotiate the convention, if you will, um, while they are in Charlottesville. Ultimately, that, that will fail. Um, but uh, it's going to take some time, but the conventioners will acclimate to their, their new barracks in uh, just four miles outside of Charlottesville near Ivy Creek. Uh, but one of the things they will discover, as anybody that has lived in Virginia, our Virginia contingent, uh, Rob Orison and Kevin Pollock and Billy Griffith and Mark Malloy, one of the things that the conventioners will not like is the Virginia summertime heat. And it will be a, a common complaint in many of the firsthand accounts of the, uh, the men during their stay in Virginia. Besides just that, uh, as they arrive there, these the barracks that they're supposed to give in, they give you a little like description. Uh, 24 by 14, um, there will be... Uh, 18 men in those. Yeah, 20 feet long, 14 feet wide, 18 men. Um, actually, the how poor condition these buildings are before they get to a Virginia summer. Um, one of the Brunswickers, a Lieutenant August Wilhelm um, Duroy, left the following observation that the construction is so miserable that it surpasses all that you can imagine in Germany of a very poorly built house. A great number of our men prefer to camp out in the woods where they could protect themselves better against the cold than in the barracks. So give you an idea of how um, not 
pleasant uh these cabins uh rustic would be a, a step up i think uh in terminology yeah. but uh the officers yeah we'll spread out will uh, phillips and rita sell and his uh, wife will be entertained uh in monticello jefferson down the street some of these officers find quarters as far away as stanton or stanton uh, depending on if you're from virginia or not how you pronounce that the town in the Shenandoah lower or the upper shenandoah valley um but jefferson remarked that because of these soldiers coming in some of Harvey's initial thoughts of a boon to the local economy will happen. Um, I think yeah. Jefferson remarks that it's approximately 3,000 or uh, circulating currency in the area increased by 30,000 per week, according to Thomas Jefferson's estimate. Um, Thomas Jefferson never embellished anything, so it's got to be completely gotta right. Be right. Uh, yeah. Gotta be right. But uh, I mean, you do have this currency uh, mode coming in. And of course, the reason they're there is that Virginia is considered um, a safe, uh, safer haven. It's farther away. Um, however, that does change. Um, and um, I know we can um, spend time talking about them in the camp and there, how deplorable the conditions are. But uh, looking at the time, of course, having two historians discuss history, we always start to run a little short. So, uh, so we got about uh, 15 minutes left. So let's we'll bring the, the soldiers kind of back out of Virginia. Um, Right now, initially, um, obviously, because what happens in 1781, Phillips uh, is is exchanged as well. Uh, we'll um, go back, of course, to the British Army. Uh, unfortunately, he doesn't make for himself, doesn't make it out of Virginia, out of the Virginia summer of 1781. Uh, dies, I think, of typhoid or something in Petersburg, waiting for yeah. um Cornwallis's army to arrive. And now you have, of course, a British force coming in. You have a gentleman that is well known um, infamously in the South uh, by Mr. Tarleton, raids, of course, all the way to Charlottesville. So these soldiers have been moved out of the way, the Convention Army, once again, to keep them from potential, um, well, release by the British forces. And so they do move them north and to the places they decide uh, to head is actually to Winchester, Virginia. Someone will head out into the lower Shenandoah Valley. And also into Frederick, Maryland, where, as Dan alluded to earlier, I am uh, sitting on the outskirts of Frederick, Maryland today. Uh, and before we uh, talk about some of their stay in Frederick, uh, Dan, is uh, do you want to finish us up in Virginia? Yeah, um, I, Phil, you touched on one thing I, I think it would be interesting in our listeners. The the terms, if you will, the, the, the new restrictions placed on the, the convention army outside of what the convention actually says, the terms of the convention, when they reach Virginia is even less restricted than it was in Boston and Cambridge. Um, Phil, you mentioned that, you know, uh, housing for officers in Charlottesville was scant. Charlottesville is an incredibly small town uh, in the 1770s. There's, there's not enough uh, housing that is uh, according to the, the rank of an officer. So really good housing. And uh, officers were able to take housing from a hundred mile radius from Charlottesville. Uh, and one of the things that, that really puts a, a craw in many of the citizens of Richmond is the number of British and uh, German officers that are living in Richmond and freely you know, walking the streets of Richmond, you know, carrying their, their sidearm and their, 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 their uh, saber uh, or sword, if you will. Um, and all of these things are going to lead to what you mentioned, you know, between the raid towards Charlottesville, at which point Jefferson is governor, um, you know, the convention army's some of it's moved to Winchester. Some of it keeps going. Some of it turns back after, after the raid, but uh, illness, disease, um, you know, a desertion, all of these events uh, during their time in Albemarle County is, is coming to uh, take a heavy toll. And, and the convention army begins to break down. As you mentioned earlier, some of the terms of the convention was that these forces would stay together and the British and German officers would continue to treat their forces as an organized unit and stay together from place to place. But now, as, as the years have literally dragged on with this thing, um, we're not seeing that anymore. Uh, we begin to see the, the breakdown of these units. Officers are being exchanged or paroled or released uh, from the convention army. And little pockets of these guys are be beginning to be sent to other places. They're beginning to be sent to, to Winchester, Virginia, Frederick, Maryland, um, some places in New Jersey, Lancaster and York and Pennsylvania. So take us, take us to Frederick, your, your sure. current uh, domicile uh, place of, of broadcast this evening. 
So, uh, and I misspoke a little bit. Um, William Phillips is actually exchanged in this uh, late summer of 1780. Um, and so he's actually exchanged uh, for a guy named Benjamin Lincoln. Ironically, Benjamin Lincoln is second in command of the uh, Continental Army uh, that um, is under Gates um, there in uh, when they fight the second battle of Saratoga. Um, uh, on October 7th, Gates, of course, or, I'm sorry, Lincoln becomes the commander of the Continental Army in the South, where he surrenders and does not get afforded the honors of war when he surrenders to Charleston in May of 1780. Uh, but William Phillips is um, exchanged for Benjamin Lincoln later that summer. So Lincoln, I mean, Phillips has stuck with the army, um, which yep. is, um, which provides uh, kind of a continuing that command structure, the uh, control and command. Burgoyne, of course, goes back to England. He's actually not seen by King George. King actually tells him to go back to America to be with his troops. Um, Burgoyne ignores it and kind of just hangs out, um, never faces a repercussion, but Burgoyne is not there to provide the administration. So it's really Phillips uh, for the British and when he is exchanged. Um, and so they move these troops up um, and some of the, uh, the convention army is housed uh, in what is Consider at the time the outskirts of um, of Frederick, Maryland. Frederick uh, at the time had uh, provided uh, numerous troops. It was kind of the largest town uh, west uh, of Western Maryland. Um, obviously, today it is still one of the largest uh, towns outside of uh, Baltimore. And then in the winter, it is the second largest town. In the summer, it falls below Ocean City, Maryland. Um, apparently, a lot of people like to go to the beach um, in the summer <laughs> months. Uh, but the barracks um, obviously uh, is is housed there to house American soldiers. Um, but it is reused um, once like just like in Cambridge, reused for some of these uh, British and uh, mostly Hessian soldiers that arrived there um, later in um, 1780 or in summer of 1781. Today, though, you can um, now we'll talk about how you can visit where some of these convention armies uh, spots are. Um, we had some great comments about how they spent some time in Connecticut. They marched across um they Enfield, Connecticut. Thank you, Matt Reardon. Each division spent the night sleeping in barns before they could cross the Connecticut River. A lot of places you'll just see historical markers. In Virginia, you have the Virginia historical markers, the iron signs that have a lot of great wording that is hard to read at 60 miles an hour as you go by. Uh, but hmdb.org, type in Convention Army, they will get you to those spots. But you can actually, in Frederick, um, at certain times of year, go visit this the barracks or the, the Hessian barracks that are used uh, to house these soldiers. Today. Uh, but um, do look up when to go because the barracks does stand on the um, the compound. I'm trying to think of the word. It's the Maryland Deaf uh, School for the uh, Deaf, and it is part of their campus. That's the word I'm looking for, campus um, in Frederick. But it is still, uh, some of the original is still standing there. So it's one of the tangible efforts um, as the soldiers, the convention army is um, moved there. And that's where some of them will stay until they finally make that march farther north um, to a small little port called New York City, uh, where they finally, um, with the rest of the evacuating army, after the Treaty of Paris uh, is signed and agreed, where they eventually evacuate. And so their long odyssey of, as Dan said, of 11 to 13 months, or I'm sorry, 11 of the 13 colonies over six years, um, hundreds of miles and mostly largely forgotten, even in, in the history of uh, the historiography of the American Revolution. Um, I have a great quote to, to end this part. So I will, before I do that, I'll pass it over to Dan for any final remarks about the soldiers in Winchester or, or the ending of the war. Yeah, you know, um, I, I just, you know, for our viewers tonight to really think about that these guys have been through an incredible ordeal up to 1777. These are veterans. Um, of the continent, or excuse me, of the of the British and and German armies, and they've done their part in the war, and then they are just relegated to a a back theater, if you will, for the next six years. And as you said, um, it's not until uh, it's not until May of 1783 that the Germans are finally released from their internments. May of 1783, um, and those that are heading back, Germans and British, as you mentioned. Um, will finally make it to New York, where they will, uh, New York City, where they will be boarded on ships. From there, their their journey has not ended. Uh, they're not going to to leave for back home from that port. They're actually going to sail from New York City to Quebec, and it's not until August first, uh, seventeen eighty three, that um, they will set sail for England. So, nearly six full years as you know, 
essentially prisoners, uh, but known as conventioners. And before I let you wrap it up, one of the, the two takeaways uh, from our discussion tonight, and really the importance, I think, for more scholarship to be done on the convention army, is that, you know, although these guys were not, as I mentioned, technically prisoners, um, they were, you know, conventioners, when this is all negotiated and begins, it presents Congress um, with the first prisoner and internment uh, problem, if you will, in the history of the United States dealing with these guys um, and what to do with them and how to feed them and how to clothe them and where to house them, house them all together, break them apart. Uh, there was no precedent. Uh, if you even take a negative view of, of how, how Congress, you know, time and time again abuses even the smallest little details of the convention terms uh, um, to, to basically, you know, push back the, the amount of time before they got to figure it out. Um, there was no precedent for any of the delegates in the Continental Congress of how to handle um, this situation. Troops that were involved uh, uh, that were involved in this became really trial and error for the United States, and it will set up um, how we deal with uh, these issues in the coming challenges, military challenges such as you know the War of 1812. The last thing that 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 last takeaway I think. Um, it's something that is often not thought about is that the United States actually is enriched by the Convention Army staying here for, for, for you know, six years. Um, approximately 1,500 of the Convention soldiers will voluntarily remain in the United States uh, post-August of 1783. Um, they're going to stay for a number of reasons. A um, number of them uh, like uh, parts of the countryside of the colonies. Um, many of them will become um, really ingrained into the economy of the early nation as, as the, the colonies form into the United States. Many of them like the, the niche areas. For example, many of the Germans will stay in uh, Winchester, Virginia, where there's a, a small uh, German settlement, if, if you will, there, and uh, York, Pennsylvania and Lancaster, Pennsylvania, huge population of Germans living there as well. So, you know, the United States really will, will benefit from all these 1,500 men uh, of, of becoming part of a growing economy, having um, skilled trades, having military experience. Um, you know, the United States really benefits, if you will, at the end of this six years uh, as these 1,500 will, will stay and integrate. Uh, sadly, however, where the research I think that needs to be done is these men integrate so well into the United States in uh, the post-Revolutionary War period that a lot of their stories are lost. Where do these guys end up, um, what they do, who they marry? Uh, the, the, I think the real weight of the research that needs to be done um, is really to support the theory of how they, they enrich the United States in the post-war era. So my takeaways of the, the importance of the Convention Army, I look forward to, to hearing uh, some of your quotes to, to wrap it up. Sure, and so uh, it's almost, uh, Dan, I appreciate you actually nailed two of the three questions that came in near the end. Do you have an Great. idea what percentage of the Hessians never returned across the Atlantic? Obviously, we don't have an exact percentage of Hessians. We know 1,500, so you say 1,500 out of 6,000, um, so a little, what, 25% or so, uh, doing roughly math quickly in my head here. Uh, that um, there's also, did some of the convention soldiers stay? Yes, in the United States, and become citizens, ironically. Um, what uh, kind of sparked my interest in this is uh, last June 2021 was headed to Winchester uh, when I was still living in, in Florida and just, uh, for a history weekend and decided to get an Airbnb that was and then so one of the listings said built by a former Hessian off, Hessian soldier who stayed wow. in Winchester so possibly of the convention so the the underlying history is always there and uh, that's what we like as historians to try to find uh, those connections and clues. Um, we did have some, did some of the convention soldiers escape with sides and joined the content army. Yes. Some yes. for nefarious reasons to get closer to the British line. So you could then uh, desert again. Others obviously to get out uh, because like the American soldiers did the soldiers in Charlottesville, Frederick, Lancaster and other ones um, suffer uh, from disease, starvation. Yes. Um, they do have yep. some uh, medical care, but obviously very primitive and it, they're also going to be largely, unfortunately, forgotten. I mean, Americans don't have the medical uh, corps and departments to serve their own troops. They're not going to send them there. Obviously, the British um, need their own medical doctors to keep the men that are actually still fighting. 
Uh, I'll share one example of that to answer that question. Um, when John Harvey was preparing outside of Charlottesville for the arrival of the troops, he had purchased a, a large amount of meat to be able to feed these guys. Um, Harvey stored the meat in the ground, so dug a hole, put all the meat rations in there, covered it up. It's wintertime, should keep it cold. Uh, when the Convention Army arrives and they dig it up, all the meat is molded. Uh, and and useless. It's all pitched. So um, yes, yeah, and that's that's a trying situation. I mean, now you got this thousands of men to feed, and there's no meat ration until more can be procured. So yes, hundred percent issues in, in in food. So just like the the Continental Army or any forces uh, in operating, especially in the southern colonies, um, meat spoils like that, uh, no matter what time of year. Uh, um, so to wrap it up, I'll uh, use the words of Sir John Fortescue or Fortescue, uh, who is a preeminent British historian who penned the history of the British army. Uh, he said, although there were a few men who purchased comfort at the price of desertion, the majority stuck faithfully to their officers or escaped and made their way to the British army in New York. Finally, in 1781, the men by direct infringement of the capitulation were separated from their officers and vanished to no man knows whither. And so um, Carsey's writing with a little bit of bias as a uh, British uh, military officer and historian. But it does show that, yeah, there, there are actually men that will um, survive and uh, this ordeal and then march uh, to New York and other places um, to, or try to make it back to the British to continue the fight. So um, the Convention Army, with that, we will wrap up the Convention Army. We um, do uh, thank everyone who uh, watched tonight that commented. Uh, Dan Waltz, thank you uh, for partnering with me tonight to talk about the Convention Army. In two weeks, um, we will be actually back. I know it's going to be a few days after St. Patrick's Day, but we're going to have an Irish theme. So on March 20th, we will be back uh, for the next Red War Reverie. It is the Irish 1798 Rebellion and the Battle of Vinegar Hill. So please join us in two weeks. Um, meanwhile, please continue to check out the blog, w, uh, EmergingRevolutionaryWar.org. Uh, you might have seen recently that all the pre, um, so I think, 63 um, revelries are now up on podcasts, which however you get your podcast, Apple, Spotify, et cetera, um, you can find them. It's enough to drive all the way to California and not uh, need to listen to anything else. Um, all free. Um, in addition to... Um, Please uh, continue to uh, go head over to emergingrevolutionarywar.org uh, because in September we're partnering with Historic Alexandria again for the world turned upside uh, down. That is the international uh, implications of the or ramifications of the American Revolution. So tickets are available for one, that one day symposium, September 24th. Uh, some great speakers, uh, some from Emerging Revolutionary War and other ones that have expertise in the French or the Russian or even John Adams and the international sphere. And then November 11th through 13th, uh, if you want to join Emerging Revolutionary War back in the field, we are doing the second annual Emerging Revolutionary War bus tour. We're going to do the formation of the American Army. Uh, we're going to look at the uh, campaign that leads to Mammoth, also the winner that won the war at Valley Forge. Tickets, uh, how to secure those tickets, where to find your lodging, and what it all includes is on the blog www.emergingrevolutionarywar.org. So for Dan Welch, for myself, Philip Greenwald, we thank you for joining us tonight on Rev War Reverie, and we'll see you back in two weeks as we talk about the Irish and the Battle of Vinegar Hill. So have a good night, everyone, and we'll see you next time.